Okay. All right. Alaikum salam. All right. Salam alaikum. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad ibn Qulubi wa dawaiha wa afiyat al-abdani wa shifaiha wa nur al-abasari wa diyaiha wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Salatu wa salamu alayka Sayyidi ya Rasulullah. Salatu wa salamu daimani wa dawami mulkillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. We're going to jump right in because... There's a lot to cover in the four and a half hours that we have allotted for this. Uh, and if we finish early, alhamdulillah, we finish early. And if we don't, then, you know, figure that out as well. So, uh, first and foremost, this text is called Wasilat al-Talab. Wasilat al-Talab. I'll talk a little bit about the text. I'll talk a little bit about the author before we begin. Um, I'm going to be using the copy that has the comments uh, of Sheikh Salah Abu Hajj, Hafidahullah Ta'ala. And um, the author of the book is uh, Sayyidina Sheikh Abu Bakr al-Mullah al-Ahsai al-Hanafi, who died in 1270 after Hijrah. So uh, by way of introduction and opening, uh, as was mentioned in the advertisement for the course, this is a very basic primer on the individual obligatory knowledge, the fard al-ayn knowledge uh, that a Muslim has to know. The aqidah part of it is is kind of, uh, since it's very straightforward, it's basically an ash'ari and maturidi approach to aqidah. And the tazkiyah or tasawuf portion of it is also very brief, so it's not necessarily uh, hanafi particular, um, which the tasawuf part wouldn't be in any case. Uh, but the fiqh portion is going to be according to the madhab of Abu Hanifa uh, Nu'man Ibn Thabit radiallahu ta'ala anhu wa'ardahu al-imam al-azam. As we always talk about at the majlis, the basic structure and skeleton for the body of Islamic studies is learn, is given to us in the hadith of Jibreel, Sayyidina Jibreel alayhi salam, where Sayyidina Jibreel alayhi salam came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he asked him a number of questions. Among those questions were, what is Iman, what is Islam, and what is Ihsan? What is Iman, what is Islam, and what is Ihsan? And Iman was answered by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam with the six articles of faith, <clears throat> with the six articles of faith. And Islam was answered by the Prophet ﷺ with the five pillars. And Ihsan was answered by the Prophet ﷺ as to worship Allah as though you can see him. And if you do not see him, then to know that he sees you. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so these three areas of study, Iman, which relates to our belief, becomes the field of Aqidah and Ilm and Kalam. Uh, the field of theology, essentially. And the second category is Islam, which relates to our outward actions, things that we can and cannot do or that we should or should not do. And that is the world of fiqh and usul al-fiqh. And the third category is in ihsan, which is the realm of the heart or spirituality or tasawwuf or tazkiyah, which is to develop the heart such that 
this awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can really shine through. And that requires a removal of bad qualities and inculcation of good qualities and a continuous turning and dependency on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So these are the three major areas of Islamic studies. These are the three major areas that are required for every single Muslim to know. Every single Muslim needs to know their basic belief about God, about the Prophet وسلم, and about those matters of the unseen that have been told to us by the Prophet and by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And the, every Muslim must also know the basic fiqh, the basic halal and haram, acceptable and not acceptable when it comes to their purification, prayer, fasting, zakat, hajj, and business transactions as necessary for one who engages in them, laws of marriage and divorce as necessary for one who is married or uh, is going through a divorce, and so on and so forth. And then the third category of things that the Muslim is required to know relates to the matters of the heart, that we have to know what are the qualities we need to have, what are the qualities that we need to avoid, how, to we, how do we develop them at some level. But you know, there's layers and layers and layers upon all of that. And the basic level is to know the absolute minimum. You know, how can I make sure that I'm worshiping correctly? How can I make sure that I'm not falling into a major issue when it comes to my spiritual development and so on? So these are all laid out for us in Hadith Jibril. These all become the trademarks, so to speak, of Muslim scholarship, the major areas of emphasis of Muslim scholarship. Of course, an understanding of the Quran feeds into that, an understanding of the Hadith feeds into that, a relationship with the hadith, <clears throat> history, biographies of righteous people, all of these things support these major areas of Islamic studies, which are referred to in the end of Hadith Jibril, the Prophet them tells us that that was Jibril, he came to you to teach you your religion. So this really encompasses the teachings of the religion. So that being said, um, Usually you'll find these works that similar to this one are medheb specific. And, uh, you know, the brief of this is that when the Prophet them is alive, anyone has a question about the religion, they ask the Prophet them. After he dies, Islam begins to spread into different places. The Sahaba in the time of Sayyidina Umar start to move to different places. And Islam starts to bump up against different civilizations. And so in order to preserve the teachings of Islam, uh, there, and, and in order to uh, answer questions that are coming up, these three areas that we talked about become developed as independent fields of study in Islamic studies. And uh, very early on, we have some sort of understanding of what orthodoxy is, at least in Sunni Islam, and I'm sure Shia have it too, but we're talking about Sunni Islam here. So we have an understanding of what kind of uh, orthodoxy we have, what is a correct belief, what is a sound belief, what is a sound action, so on and so forth. And the sound beliefs were known through the approaches of three major schools um, with a little bit of, um, the first of them being the school of Abul Hassan al-Ash'ari, which becomes the Ash'ari Madhab and Aqidah. And the second one being the approach of Abu Mansur al-Maturidi, which becomes the Maturidi school in Aqidah. Uh, the Ash'ari school is largely followed by uh, Shafi'i and Maliki scholars, and the Maturidi school is largely followed by Hanafi scholars. And then the third category in Aqidah is the approach of Imam Ahmed, which is not a school in the same way the other ones are. I mean, it is, but it's not, uh, it didn't, 
as as a as as a premise of the school, it doesn't delve into the same kind of theorizing and and philosophizing to use those words that the other schools um, dealt with. But in any case, these are the three major schools. And they have their scholars and they have their books and they're known all throughout Muslim history up to today. Second category of the study is in Islam, which is fiqh. And of course, for Sunnis, we have the four Imams. We have Abu Hanifa, Malik, Shafi'i, and Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And each of them has their students, has their works, has the preservation of their teachings. The preservation of their teachings in terms of the rulings and in terms of the methodology. And then that is also worked with and applied and uh, extended onto new situations as they develop over the course of the last thousand years. Um, so those are the four schools. So that's why usually the book and since fiqh is the subject that takes up the most space um, in terms of like the vastness of its rulings, the vastness of things that need to be known in order to really master fiqh. Um, which is not to take away from either of the other two areas. It's just to say, like, you know, you pick up a fiqh book and it's very common for it to be 10, 15, 20 volumes if it's one of the larger books. Um, and so uh, oftentimes the book will be written according to the madhab and fiqh because there's more detail to cover there. We're talking about Allah. We say there's this we say about him. There's this we don't say. It's done. Prophets, so on and so forth. Um, as you'll see when we cover this, it's going to take a couple pages to do it at a very, 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 very introductory level. And the spirituality is going to take a couple pages to do it at a very introductory level. And the rest of the book is fit. So uh, it's usually written, these books are usually written on the Madhab. Uh, Mulana Ustad Fuad, uh, who's also an instructor at the Majlis, has recently taught this at the Majlis according to the Maliki Madhab. So alhamdulillah, after this course, we will have uh, recordings available for uh, the basic introduction of the Fardain, individual obligations, according to the Maliki school. And after this one, according to the Hanafi school as well. And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us tawfiq to be able to host other people to do the other madhabs as well. Just out of um, a recognition and appreciation of this methodology and its centrality to the experience of Muslims uh, over Muslim history, intellectual history. So saying all of that, our book is called Wasilatul Talab. I called it Aid in Seeking. It's actually really hard to translate Wasilatul Talab. The idea here is that the Imam, Sheikh Abu Bakr Al-Mullah Al-Ahsai, has written just a short work to cover those things that we talked about. Uh, I will say a few things about his life. And then we'll begin, inshallah. So the author, again, is Abu Bakr ibn Muhammad al-Mullah al-Ahsai al-Hanafi. He was born in 1198 after Hijra, and he died in 1270 after Hijra, anhu. Uh, as you know, currently we're in year 1443 after Hijra. So this is not, he died 170 years ago. It's not that long ago in the, in the span of uh, Muslim history, that's not very long ago. Uh, this this work has a small introduction to the Sheikh, which was put together by uh, the Sheikh's grandson, Sheikh Yahya al-Mullah, uh, taken from the work of the Sheikh's son, uh, Sheikh Abdullah bin Abi Bakr al-Mullah. 
So one of the things to note here is that he's, again, he was born in 1197, 98, 1198 in Al-Ahsa, which is in modern day Saudi Arabia. Uh, Al-Ahsa has historically been a great center of learning and up to today is a great center of learning where the four madhabs are still studied and uh, their teachers are there and their madrasas are there and they're very, very advanced in all of the madhabs. Mashallah, you can find really good scholars in all of the madhabs, um, which is really an amazing thing that, you know, that city has maintained that legacy. Uh, the sheikh was, you know, he grew up because of this nature of the city and because his family was filled with scholars. He himself grew up in a scholarly environment. His father died when he was only eight years old, and he was raised after that by his mother, by his uncles, by his family. Um, so he began by, you know, learning how to read, learning how to write, and memorizing the Quran. And he did that by the time he was 10 years old and began to lead tarawih as an imam because of how strong his memorization was. And he also began to finish books in like fiqh, nahu, so on, grammar, um, law, grammar. And these are, um, because this is the way that he was raised, he was raised with a love for the religion, a, a love for the Quran, a love for people of knowledge and, and their character and their etiquettes and so on and so forth. And he, of course, inherited a significant portion of that. Some of his primary instructors were his uncles, um, as well as the other ulama of Al-Ahsa. And he basically did what anyone would do in the world of Islamic studies, as is you start in the beginning and you master all of the sciences. So he went through all of the different sciences. This is uh, recognizable by the knowledge that he was widely accepted as a great imam in his time. And if that's the case, then, you know, the person has mastered everything. He wrote over 60 books, I mean, over 50 books, uh, at least. And so he was well known for his knowledge, for his teaching and so on. Uh, he studied with the scholars of his land and his place and then eventually So he, his teachers, they gave him permission to give fatwa. His teachers, they gave him permission to teach. And so he began to teach and give fatwa in the light while his teachers were still alive. And the, the, the quality of his knowledge and the depth of his expertise became known as a result of this and became very clear. And so he began teaching in the madrasa of his family and his uh, ancestors, Madrasa al-Mullah, uh, from that time. He would teach from after Asr until Maghrib uh, with the approval of his uncle and his Sheikh Abdurrahman ibn Umar al-Mullah. Because they saw how knowledgeable he was and how gifted he was in educating. So he began to read the books of Tawheed, of Aqidah, of Hadith, of Tafsir, of Fiqh, of the Arabic language, of inheritance, uh, of mathematics, and of character and manners. Uh, is important here. You know, this is the traditional method of learning and the traditional method of teaching was that you have a text, the sheikh reads the text, you master the text, you move on to the next text, and you go through the sulam, you go through the ladder of Islamic studies. Uh, and so many people began to benefit from him. Many people began to seek his guidance, seek his advice. Uh, they appreciated his beautiful manners and his humility and the good way that he would deal with people and he would give them advice and he would give them reminders and he would stay away from worldly things. Uh, 
uh, and he was very honorable and patient and tolerant in his way of dealing with the people. Um, he taught in various schools, and then after, after, after some time later in his life, uh, he was approached by, he was given support by someone who was very wealthy, so, and that person established an endowment to make sure that the educational work that the sheikh was doing would continue over time. Uh, this it's not actually that complicated, really, um, and this is the way that Islamic Islam spread. So maybe the person has a lot of money. Say, for example, in our modern world, totally. I mean, it's not super common, but it's not unreasonable for in the modern world for uh, a Muslim to have tens of millions of dollars. So that tens of millions of dollars, the person would go and they buy a building and they put it in the name of the school. They say this is going to be a school and a um, a school and maybe like a musalla, maybe kind of similar to IOK for people who are in Southern California. Maybe you do it kind of like this, but not like a elementary school, like a seminary school and a, and a, um, and a musalla. And the building is paid off and then they put some money towards, maybe they take $5 million and they put an endowment. And then the profit that comes from that every single year goes to pay the expenses, pay the salaries of the staff, so on and so forth for perpetuity. So that's how they would establish these things. So one person does it and then 50, later, 50 years later, another person does it, 50 years later, another person does it. Over the course of three, four, 500 years, you have many schools that are independent and financially stable and so on. And that's the way that Islam would remain kind of like strong in these places. So towards the end of his life in, in 1257, so we said he died in 1270, so 1257, maybe uh, 13 years before he died, this school was established and he was made to kind of be the head of the school and so on. And many people learned there. And actually, people who learned there, they many of them went into different areas of specialization so that they covered all different fields. Someone went into maybe Qadat and to the judiciary system. Someone else went into teaching. Someone else went into giving reminders and encouraging the people. Someone else went into da'wah. Someone else went into running schools. And all of them would be kind of connected to the Shaykh. Uh, there's a beautiful description of him, subhanAllah. I'm going to try to just kind of uh, translate it as I go. Uh, he was a scholar of who had a reverence to him. And the people had deference to him from the from the general population and from the people of knowledge and from the political leadership. And he was well known in his time and the time that came after it uh, at a level that was like it's basically as, as known as you can be in his time. Uh, he was very wise. He had very clear intelligence and uh, he would not approach people with things that would upset them. He would speak softly and speak kindly and prefer others over himself. He would try to be just and temperate in the way that he did things and give advice to the people and encourage them and make them beloved to one another. And he would tell them to stay away from things that are going to cause khilaf, things that are going to cause discord in the community. Um, he was very merciful, very kind and very passionate about the religion. You know, he had very uh, like a jealousy, so to speak, over the religion and its honor. Uh, he was uh, <clears throat> humble with the elderly and with the young, uh, with the rich and with the poor, very easygoing, very tolerant. Um, and uh, even, even with those who would come to him to harm him. Uh, At the same time, he would fear no one when he needs to stand up for the truth and especially he would often act in defense of the honor of the students of knowledge 
out of his love for them and out of his servants for the service for them. Um, he was very patient and wouldn't get involved in superficial things uh, and like spreading rumors, talking about things that don't need to be talked about, so on and so forth. Uh, he would actually spend a large portion of his day teaching. So after Fajr until almost midday, he would teach. After Dhuhr until almost Asr, he would teach. After Asr until almost Maghrib, he would teach. So most of his day was spent, especially after his years of study, uh, in teaching people and in uh, spreading the knowledge of the religion. As I mentioned, he would read, he would teach most of the day, and he would pray in the night, and make munajat and make dhikr in the in the late part of the night, and uh, then again, as I mentioned, he wrote many many works. His works were often uh, easy to deal with. So some of the ones that are kind of well-known is this one, Wasilatul Talab, um, which is very basic, as we're going to see. Uh, there's another one that's similar to it, but maybe like a, a step higher, Ithafat Talib. That's been translated. I think it's been translated as Gift of the Seeker, Ithafat Talib. And he wrote a commentary on it as well called Minhaj al-Raghib. Um, that has not been translated as far as I know. And then another work that's kind of well known of his is called Tuhfat al-Tulab, which is a versification of uh, the major rulings in the Hanafi school in 1950 verses. Um, it's kind of similar in its mustawa and its level as Al-Quduri, but it's in verse form. So it's easy to study. And mashallah, he's later. So oftentimes people maybe who are familiar with the Hanafi school, it's spread to a lot of different places over long periods of time. So oftentimes one will find a lot of difference of opinion within the school. And so because he's much later, when he when he does the versification, he's able to kind of like pick from there uh, the positions that are the most well-known and the most reliable in the madhab and present those. So that's just a little bit about the Shaykh. That being said, inshallah, let's begin the text. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Anyone who's on Zoom, if you have any questions, uh, you can feel free to put it in the box. Um, I I don't um, I muted everyone so that you know we just don't have any interruptions by accident or something. Sometimes someone comes on and they forget, you know. But if you would like to ask anything, please feel free to put it in the question box, and inshallah we will try to get to it. So Bismillah. Um, Uh, uh, although this text is, is 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 quite basic, and Alhamdulillah, I've studied other things in the Madhab as well. Um, I, I was able to study this text quite recently with with the author of the um, comments that we have here, Sheikh Salah, and um, he you know he has given his permission for me to teach it. Um, so Alhamdulillah, we, we have a, you know, Senad in this text. Um, it was always, actually all of this knowledges, they were always taken that way through teachers and through chains of transmission. Um, yeah, I'm not going to do an introduction on the Hanafi school, Hanafi school, 
is extremely vast. Um, the, for just very basic things in that is that Imam Abu Hanifa was born in the year 80 after Hijra and he died in the year 150 after Hijra, most likely as a result of being poisoned after refusing on multiple uh, occurrences, refusing to take the position of Qadi in, in, in the government, take the position of judge. And so uh, he, he lived for about 70 years. He was a tabi'i, uh, meaning he met some of the Sahaba in his youth. He met some of the Sahaba who lived to be very old. There's some debate on which ones he met and so on, but he's a tabi'i. And uh, so when people say like, why don't, you know, we don't follow a madhab, we follow the Salaf. I mean, um, they are the Salaf. Like <laughs> Abu Hanifa is from the Salaf, Malik is from the Salaf. Um, you know, so, and, and where did they get their knowledge from? They got their knowledge from the Salaf, from the Sahaba, from the Tabi'een, from the great scholars of their time. But again, we're not doing an introduction to the Madahib right now uh, or to the Hanafi school. Uh, Imam Abu Hanifa had a number of great students, the most primary of whom are Abu Yusuf and Muhammad, who in their own rights were also Mujtahid Mutlaq. They were also independent, highest level Mujtahidun uh, in, the, in the law. But they affiliated themselves with Imam Abu Hanifa out of love and out of reverence and out of deference to their teacher. So oftentimes in the works of the Hanafi school, you'll find not only Abu Hanifa's position, but Abu Yusuf and Muhammad as well. Sometimes you also find Zufr, sometimes you also find Al-Hassan ibn Ziyad, um, and so on. Uh, we'll just leave it at that. Maybe introduction to the Hanafi school is another, it's its own class. Maybe we'll do it one day, inshallah. Allahu alam. Uh, so let's start. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Qala al-Musannifu rahimahullahu ta'ala wa nafan Allahu wiyahu bi'ulumihi fi darain. Amin. The author says the following. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala benefit him and us from his knowledge in this life and the next. Amin. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Al-Muqaddimatu. Alhamdulillahi wahda. Wa salatu wa salamu ala man la nabiyya ba'da. أما بعد فهذا مختصر في الفقه مما لا يسع المكلف جهله من الأحكام سميته وسيلة الطلب والله الموفق. So he starts off by uh, praising Allah subhanahu wa taala, sending salat on the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and saying that this is a summary in fiqh, uh, and it covers that which the mukallaf, the person who is accountable in front of Allah subhanahu wa taala, uh, cannot be ignorant of these things. They cannot be ignorant of these things. They must know them. Um, when do you become mukallaf? You become mukallaf if you have sound intellect, sound mind, assuming no other issues, uh, you know, in your teenage years. Basically, a, a woman becomes mukallaf at the first sign of her uh, menstruation, and a male becomes mukallaf at the first uh, wet dream that he has, or, you know, around the age of 15, if that doesn't happen. So people need to know this, and they need to know it before they're 18, before they're 20, before they're 25, before they're 30. But nonetheless, alhamdulillah, we start wherever we are. So he begins then by saying, Muqaddimatun fi usul al-deen, an introduction relating to the matters of usul al-deen. Usul al-deen is one of the many names that is used for the general field of al-tawheed, or usul al-deen, or al kalam or al-aqidah, or iman. So on, all of it relates to our beliefs. يعلم أن أركان الإسلام خمسة شهادة أن لا إله إلا الله وأن محمد رسول الله وإقام الصلاة وإيتاء الزكاة وصوم رمضان وحج البيت يعلم من استطاع إليه سبيلا. 
So he says that know that the pillars of Islam are five, to bear witness that there is no God but God and that Muhammad is the messenger of God, to establish the daily prayers, to pay your zakat, pay your poor tax or your tax or your um, charity to the poor, uh, to fast in Ramadan and to make hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca, if one is able to do so. Then he says, أَمَّا iman فَهُوَ أَن تُؤْمِنَ بِاللَّهِ وَمَلَائِكَتِهِ وَكُتُبِهِ وَرُسُلِهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَبِنْ قَدْرٍ خَيْرِهِ وَشَرِّهِ مِنَ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى He says, so the, then Iman is the six articles of faith to believe in Allah and His angels and His books and His messengers and the Day of Judgment and Divine Decree, the good of it and the bad of it. So now he's going to go into uh, what does it mean to believe in these things? So what does it mean to believe in this? This is what makes a person, the most foundational level, this is what makes a person a Muslim, right? Is that they believe in the six articles of faith of Iman, believe in the six articles of belief of Iman, and they believe in the five pillars of Islam, right? This is the absolute minimum, makes the person a Muslim. So he, um, he now is going to talk about what are those things in Iman that a person needs to know as it relates to belief. وَمَعْنَ الْإِيمَانِ بِاللَّهِ أَنْ تَعْتَقِدَ أَنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَى وَاحِدٌ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهِ قَدِيمٌ لَا أَوَّلَ لَهِ بَاقٍ لَا آخِرَ لَهِ حَيٌّ مُتَكَلِّمٌ عَالِمٌ مُرِيدٌ قَدِيرٌ لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٌ وَهُوَ السَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ Okay, so this is now, what does it mean when we say we believe in Allah? Who is Allah? Is Allah the man upstairs? Is Allah an old guy sitting on a chair in the sky? Is Allah a human being reincarnated? Is Allah uh, nature, you know, I'm so grateful that nature gave me this. The universe, the universe is working in my face. So, what is this universe, right? Uh, who is who is Allah Subhanahu wa Taala? When we say that we believe in Allah, who is Allah? <coughs> now, <coughs> the uh, the Ashari and the Maturidi schools will largely agree on the way that they break down these attributes. And he kind of uh, more or less hints at them here. He doesn't give kind of like the really structured breakdown that you'll find in some of the more uh, specialized works of Aqidah, but he, he basically covers everything here. So what is he saying? He says, number one is to believe that Allah is one. He has no partners. Allah is one. He has no partners. No partners, no similarities, no pieces, no, um, no disunity. Purely unity, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, that he is qadim, la awwalala. That he is qadim, la awwalala. Which means that he has no beginning. Subhanahu wa ta'ala, he has no beginning. And that he is baqin, la akhirala. And that he is permanent, no ending to him. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Of course, we understand this also because Allah is the creator of all things. Therefore, he is not limited by that which he creates subhanahu wa ta'ala so if he creates if not if he creates he did create existence and existence has limitations uh, everything in existence has a beginning vast majority of things in existence have an end arguably not paradise but it has a beginning and um uh they change you know, like you have some prayer beads. The prayer beads didn't always look this way. Eventually, they'll wear out. They won't always be that way. 
maybe they'll erode, maybe they'll deteriorate, maybe they'll turn into dust, whatever it might be. There's change that happens in all of that. And all of that is part of the description of the created. And the creator is free from the limitations of the creation. Otherwise, the creator would need a creator. And if the creator needed a creator, that would go back uh, infinitely. There would be infinite regress in that. And so there would be nothing, actually. There would be no present. We wouldn't be here right now. All of this can be discussed in more detail. And this is the realm of Ustad Fuad. Uh, you can tune into his classes at the Majlis or listen to the old recordings, and you'll get a much better description of all of that. But what do we say about Allah? That he is one, that he has no beginning, that he has no end, that he is living. He is hay. He is living. He's not some abstract concept that doesn't have any sort of uh, ongoing relationship with creation, but he is hay. He is living. Subhanahu wa ta'ala is mutakallim. He speaks. He has speech. He is alim. He is alim, meaning he has knowledge, and he is murid. He has will, and he has and he has in he is qadir. He has ability or power. Subhanahu wa taala, and all of that is understood in the context of laysa kemithri he shay, laysa kemithri So he has a he he has a speech that does not resemble our speech. He has knowledge that is does not resemble our knowledge he knows everything that was and could have been he knows everything that is and could have been he knows everything that will be and could have been he knows every single possibility of every single possible thing in all of existence subhanahu wa ta'ala that's his knowledge very different than our knowledge and even still there's no similitude we can't actually fully comprehend it this is why a big part of how we define allah if, if that's the correct term, I don't know if it is. How, a big part of how we understand Allah is to emphasize the negations. So, I mean, he doesn't have beginning. He doesn't have end. He doesn't have partners. He doesn't have need. He doesn't have similitude, subhanahu wa ta'ala, at all. And then those are the attributes of negation. The things that he does not have, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what's left? What's left is Allah. What's left is Allah. And then we describe him with certain positive affirmations uh, of attributes that are not meant to be uh, comprehensive in the sense that they cover everything. But if we distill all of the descriptions that we have of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is a good representation of all of those. If we bring them all down into as few number as we possibly can, then we would say that he is living, that he is knowledgeable, that he has will, that he has power. So he's living. Yeah, and he's present, subhanahu wa ta'ala. He, he, he exists. And then he has knowledge of all of the different possibilities. From some of those possibilities, he wants certain ones to actually happen, to actually come into existence. And then his power connects to his irada. His power connects to his will, and then it brings it into existence. And then he is also uh, samir and basir. He is seeing and hearing, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So all of these are descriptions of Allah, basic descriptions. Basic descriptions. We don't believe that he has partners. We don't believe that he has need. He does not have need. He did not need to create anything in existence. He does not need our worship. Uh, it is us who are in need of him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
He is an ghani. He is the one who is without need, and you are the ones who are utterly dependent. Um, he does not have any similarity. When we say that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks, don't understand the speech that we have. Don't understand the uh, when Allah is described with certain th things. They're not the same as ours. Because he is Allah and we are his creation. Uh, and so on. So this is the meaning of what does it mean to believe in Allah. وَمَعْنَ الْإِيمَانِ بِمَلَائِكَتِهِ أَنْ تَعْتَقِدَ أَنَّ الْمَلَائِكَةَ عِبَادُ اللَّهِ لَا يَعْصُونَهُ لَحْظَةً is to believe that the angels are servants of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they do not disobey him for even an instant. It's basic belief in malaika, basic belief in angels, that they're uh, created from light and that they were created to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They're not necessarily even forced to obey Allah. They're created only to obey. And uh, they, they do whatever he says and they do not disobey him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So one of the things that would commonly come up here for someone who's grown up in the West is that we don't look at shaitan, Iblis, Satan, as a fallen angel. Iblis is not a fallen angel. Iblis is a jinn, another creation, which he doesn't even mention here because that's how uh, brief this is. But the, he's another creation who was uh, had worshipped Allah so much that he was in the company of the angels. And when Allah told them to bow to Adam alayhi salam, all of the angels did so and Iblis rejected it. He rejected it because he's not an angel. If he was an angel, he would have to bow. He would bow. He's not an angel. He's a jinn. They have free will. And he chose to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So believe in angels. وَمَعْنَ الْإِيمَانِ بِكُتِبِهِ أَنْ تَعْتَقِدَ أَنَّ جَمِعَ مَا أَنزَلَ اللَّهُ مِنَ الْكُتِبِ كَلَامُ اللَّهِ الْقَدِيمُ غَيْرُ مَخْلُوقِ And what it means to believe in the books of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to believe that everything that Allah revealed from his books is the speech of Allah which is eternal and is not created. We're not going to go into this. Um, but they are, the, 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 the books... The revelation in and of themselves are the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And uh, the, what it means to believe in the messengers is to believe that all of the messengers of God were sent to creation with truth. We don't distinguish between the messengers in the sense that all of them were sent to deliver the message. All of them were sent to deliver the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of them were sent to tell people to worship Allah, to tell people to do good things, to give them information about the unseen, to tell them about the hereafter, to call them to the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of the messengers did this and they have certain uh, characteristics, which he actually doesn't get into here. But what's commonly said about the messengers is that they have perfect intellect and that, um, among the things, that they have perfect intellect and that they fully um, convey what they are meant to convey and uh, that they are protected from error in that um, and, and that they are trustworthy in what they are conveying. And we believe in all of the messengers. We, of course, do not know all of them. We believe in all of the prophets. Of course, we do not know all of them. Uh, 
and uh, you know, there's different narrations that mention different numbers that might be possible in terms of the amount of messengers and prophets that were sent to humankind. And uh, you know, whatever the number is, we believe in all of them. That's the point. Whatever the number is, we believe in all of them. We don't distinguish between them in the sense that they all played this role. We do distinguish between them in the sense that they are not all of the same rank. And, uh, you know, someone will come back and they'll say, well, but it says in the Quran, that's true. We don't distinguish between any of the messengers. And it also says in the Quran, those are the messengers. We gave virtue. We gave some virtue to some of them over the others. I mean, they all have a base level of being the greatest human beings that ever existed. And within the realm of the greatest human beings that ever existed, there's some of them that are higher. Ulul Azmi min al-Rusuli, Sayyidina Ibrahim, Sayyidina Nuh, Sayyidina Musa, Sayyidina Isa, and Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. These five are the Ulul Azm, the ones of strong resolve. They're the ones that you know, the greatest of the messengers. And of course, out of the greatest of the messengers is Al-Habib Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam is the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam khayru khalqillah he's the best of Allah's creation the entirety of the heavens and the earth the entirety of the universe in comparison to the kursi the stool is like a ring in the desert and the stool in comparison to the throne is like a ring in the desert. You know, out of the makhluqat, in terms of azama, like magnificence, the throne is the greatest of the creation. And what's greater than the throne is the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the greatest of Allah's creation. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And what we can say, and Bulsiri said about the Prophet وسلم, is that he is a human being and that he was the greatest of all of Allah's creation. That he is, I'm sorry, not was, that he is وسلم, the greatest of Allah's creation. ومعنى الإيمان باليوم الآخر أن تعتقد أن الله تعالى يبعث الخنق بعد الموت ويحاسبهما تعتقد أن سؤال منكر ونكير وعذاب القبر والصراط والميزان والحوض والشفاعة حق والجنة والنار حق. So as for the believing in the day of judgment or the yeah, the day of judgment you can say it is to believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will uh, um, return, uh, resurrect creation after their death and that he will hold them accountable. And that Munkar and Nakir, the angels who ask you in your ask us in our grave, what did you what did what, what do you say about uh, Islam? What was your way? And uh, what do you say about uh, this man, the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam? What do you believe in? Do you believe in Allah? What is your way? And what do you say about the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam? To believe in that questioning in the graves. It's a matter of belief in the hereafter. Uh, to believe in the punishment of the grave is a matter of aqidah. To believe in the the traverse, the bridge that crosses, the, 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 the believers cross in order to get into paradise, or surat. To believe in al-mizan, which is the scale on the day of judgment. 
that the, the scale will be brought and the deeds will be weighed. And, uh, you know, that's all part of the accountability. When hold, the hold is the uh, pool of the Prophet wasallam. The pool of the Prophet wasallam. The greatest, the greatest thing is, of course, to drink from the hold, but not just to drink from the hold, but to drink min yadihi, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam takes his own hand, alayhi salatu wasallam, and brings the water and brings it to us so that we can drink it, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This is the hold. May Allah give us that. Shafa'atu, haq, the intercession of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Uh, is a true reality that the Prophet ﷺ will come on the Day of Judgment and he will intervene on behalf of members of his ummah. Some of them maybe were destined to spend some time in the hellfire, he'll pull them out. Some of them were meant to be in a certain place in paradise, he'll pull them up, and so on. ﷺ, this is his intercession. And that paradise and hellfire are absolutely true. These are absolute realities. Uh, so this is what it means to believe in the Day of Judgment. This relates now to the unseen. In the, many of the books of Aqidah, they'll break it up into ilahiyat, wa nubuat, sami'iyat. That the matters that relate to Allah, the matters that relate to the prophets, and the matters that relate to the unseen. But here he's kind of like walking us through, um, based on the categorization of Hadith Jibril, really. Um, and that's, of course, to make it kind of just... Uh, uh, more accessible and more close for the average person. And the divine to believe in Qadr is to believe in the divine decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that everything that happens in all of existence is by the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it's by the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa kamal al-imani qadr by the way people are like well how can we understand this and so on and so forth we understand qadr by submitting to its reality by submitting to it as a, as a matter of reality to say that we we affirm everything that we said about Allah and we believe in Allah and so, you know, everything that happens is his decree. And only through submission and only through worship and only through uh, a light that Allah puts in the heart of the believer can Qadr really begin to be understood at some level. But it's, it, it's, it's, a, uh, it's not something to be philosophized about. Some conversation to be had, of course. But um, not much. Much of it is related to submission. And Imam Al-Tahawi talks about this in, in his Aqidah. وَكَمَالِ الْإِيمَانِ إِقْرَارٌ بِاللِّسَانِ وَتَصْدِيقٌ بِالْجِنَانِ وَعَمَلٌ بِالْأَرْكَانِ فَمَنْ تَرَكَ الْإِقْرَارَ فَهُوَ كَافِرٌ وَمَنْ تَرَكَ التَّصْدِيقَ فَهُوَ مُنَافِقٌ وَمَنْ تَرَكَ الْعَمَلَ فَهُوَ فَاسِقٌ This is a nice little breakdown he gives here. So he says that, so the completion of one's Iman, the fullness of one's Iman is known through an affirmation on the tongue and a belief in the heart 
and action that happens on the limbs. So the person who leaves the affirmation with the tongue, they're a disbeliever. They don't affirm that they're a believer. They're a disbeliever. The person who leaves the belief in the heart, then they're a munafiq, right? They're a hypocrite. They're the one who, by their tongue, they say that they're a believer, but in their heart, they actually disbelieve. So they're a hypocrite. We're not talking about someone who has hypocritical behavior here. We're talking about like an actual hypocrite. They're saying something outwardly, but inwardly, they don't actually believe in it. And the one who leaves acting upon the consequences of that belief, then they are a person of corrupt moral standing. So this is the summary of the matters of belief. Again, like I said, uh, this is very brief. Um, and yet I'm taking too long. So we're going to keep moving. Faslun firridda. Faslun firridda. Interestingly, he puts a section on ridda here. I don't know if that's in uh, Al-Murshid al-Mu'in or not. I don't know if that's, uh, it's not. I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting because he lives in Arabia, probably around the time when there's movements that were going around calling a bunch of people kafir and killing them and taking their property and their land. So he probably felt it was, it's not here in the comments and I didn't hear that from anyone, but just having some sort of like, understanding of the time period and maybe he felt like this is a relevant issue i need to mention it here so what is ridda ridda is when you leave islam so he, he gives some details here on like when does that happen when does that not happen how do we know that so on uh and you know it's relatively short as well so, uh, leaving Islam, leaving Islam, is to cut a person's relationship with Islam by a statement or an action that indicates disbelief, or that ob obligates, in a sense, it, that through that action, through that action, or through that statement. They have engaged in disbelief. They have they have left their belief by doing this, and and it and the action. The action happens. Um, the action happens on intentionally, ta'amud. It happens on on ta'amud, like making sujud to an idol. You know, bowing and making sujud to an idol, or throwing the the mushaf, throwing the mushaf, the the written. Quran in, into like something dirty or filthy or so on. To do such a thing is an act of disbelief in and of itself. Um, there's an important point here that um, that he mentions in the footnote in the from the from the Hanafi scholars, which is that. Um, Basically, if uh, like if there's any opinion in Islam, even if it's considered a weak opinion, that would make it so that the person has not committed an act of disbelief, then we consider them to not have committed an act of disbelief. Okay, so I don't know. I don't know what an example of that would be, but basically, it's basically saying. We make this as wide as we possibly can. Make this as wide as we can. Uh, 
So, um, yeah, I can't think of an example, but Spanish, surely. That's the idea. Ibn Nujaym, he said, وَالَّذِي تَحَرَّرَ أَنَّهُ لَا يُفْتَى بِكُفْرِ مُسْلِمًا أَمْكَنَ حَمْلُ كَلَامِهِ عَلَى مَحْمَلٍ حَسَنٍ أَوْ كَانَ فِي كُفْرِهِ اخْتِلَافٌ وَلَوْ رِوَايَةٍ ضَعِيفًا so like even if if there's some way to say that this person actually didn't do an act of kufr that they're actually not a kafir then we'll use any opinion we can find in order to keep them in islam normally you can't do this right so this is maybe something that requires more explanation but normally you can't just take any opinion you feel like you pick up a hanafi book there's three opinions four opinions five opinions on something throughout a thousand years you don't just pick whichever one you feel like and act upon it there's one that is there's one or sometimes two that are acceptable for action. And the only way that another one would be acceptable is in an absolute necessity, which keeping someone in Islam is. That's what their reasoning is here. Anyways, when qawlun mujibu lil kufri, and as for the statement that necessitates kufr, la farqa an an when it comes to something that the person says, it doesn't matter if they're doing it, they said it out of something they actually believe or something that they're just being stubborn about, or they were just joking. Like, you can joke around about kufr and it's kufr. It's, it's not like, you know, afterwards you say, oh, I was just joking. It's like, no, this is actually, there's no just joking in that. Uh, all right, so we mentioned all of that. Uh, so whoever um, deems something to be halal when it's absolutely haram, no difference of opinion, absolutely haram, and a person deems it to be halal, then this is disbelief. It's a very important issue, actually. Very important issue. Just because we can't do something doesn't mean we should change the ruling on it. That's not our business. Allah tells us what to do. The Prophet ﷺ tells us what to do. If they have laid out something absolutely clear, with no difference of opinion, I can't come and say otherwise. If I do, that's kufr. So I can't be like, you know what? Actually, I don't even want to say this because like it's a cold. But... Uh, you know, you can't something uh, like, like he says here khamr is haram alcohol is haram someone comes and says no, alcohol is not haram or wine is not haram that's kufr someone comes and says zina to, to have mar- you know, sexual relations outside of marriage uh, is an act and they say, they say that that's okay no, that's kufr there's, this is not. This is really serious because that's absolutely known to be part of the religion, and this is what the issue comes down to. Did they reject something that's absolutely known to be part of the religion? That can vary a little bit depending on place and time and stuff. So let's say, for example, like something that's considered to be absolutely known from the religion in the lands of Islam might be different than something that's known to be absolutely part of the religion in lands where Islam is not dominant. Maybe people just didn't know. Um, whatever that might be, you know. Uh, and the opposite is true. 
that they can they they consider to be prohibited something that is absolutely allowed by ijma it's allowed by consensus this thing is allowed and they say no it's not allowed it's an act of kufr we have to be really careful about this you know uh, unfortunately in the muslim community we have a tendency to talk about a lot of things that we really shouldn't be talking about and to give opinions on them when we shouldn't be giving opinions on them to say something that is to say something is halal haram is the domain of allah and his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam it's not the domain of my opinion or your opinion or uncle's opinion or auntie's opinion or you know the guy that i really like who has a lot of followers on tiktok his opinion doesn't matter either um all of that is irrelevant what matters is what allah and his messenger said and to mess around with this is a very serious issue it's a very serious issue um so the one who considers to be halal something that's absolutely haram like alcohol or um adultery or killing someone or they consider it to be prohibited something that is absolutely allowed by consensus those are both acts of kufr they've, they've committed kufr in that or they um seek to come closer to an idol by sacrificing things for it and stuff this is the act of kufr this is kufr or they say to a muslim you are a kafir and there's no kind of like interpretation for what's going on there then they have committed kufr and there's a hadith of the prophet sallallahu on this why is the prophet sallallahu giving a hadith that's that severe like if someone calls someone else a kafir a disbeliever it's true for one of them so if you don't have like some really good reason to be saying that about that person, that means it's true for you. Because the Prophet ﷺ is trying to make very clear to us that this is extremely dangerous business. It's extremely dangerous business. Calling someone else a kafir is extremely dangerous business. It really should be left to people of knowledge, judiciary, needs conversation, so on and so forth. And any way that we can keep people in Islam, we keep them in. Any way that we can assume that they're Muslim, we assume that they're Muslim. وَمَنْ عَزَمَ عَلَى الْكُفْرِ فِي الْمُسْتَقْبَلِ كَفْرَ فِي الْحَالِ This is an interesting one. The one who intends to disbelieve in the future has disbelieved in the moment. It's a really interesting one because where does this sometimes come up? Marriage. Sister wants to marry the guy. The guy's not a Muslim. He says, you know, I'll just say that I'm Muslim. And, you know, later on, I'm, later on, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like. The later on, I'm going to do whatever I feel like, in terms of like not believing, means that in the moment, the person is a disbeliever. So the marriage will not be valid. There's a lot of issues related to this, right? Again, we don't take these things sometimes as seriously as we should. Someone uh, mocks one of the names of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or a command from his commands or a uh, promise from his promises or a threat from his threats, then they have disbelieved. Or they make light of the sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. they've disbelieved. In the, in the Hanafi books, for example, they give an example. If someone says to the person, shave your head uh, and trim your fingernails, because it's the sunnah of the Prophet And they say in response to that, I'm not going to do that, even if it's the sunnah of the Prophet If they say that, they've, they they kafir. It's very serious, right? So like, why? 
because you're making light of the Prophet Do it, don't do it, it's your own issue. What matters is what is the mekan of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and what is the what is the 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 status and the station of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that we don't want to uh, take away from in any sort of way. The Prophet is, you know, on our heads. We put our heads in the feet of the Prophet. This is belief. We want to finish belief today. We want to finish uh, spirituality today. Inshallah. We want to finish Iman today. We want to finish Ihsan today. That way, the next two sessions we can leave for Islam. We can leave for the fiqh. Okay, so this is Iman. Basic, basic beliefs. As I said, if you want more in this, uh, be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the way that I am, that we have Ustad Fuad and Gohari as part of the majlis. And you can go to his classes, you can listen to his classes, you can sign up for his office hours, you can you know reach out to him and speak to him. We're very, very blessed to have someone who's specialized in Kanam, in Aqidah, as a member of our community and as part of our teaching uh, team. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. So this is the absolute minimum. You want more? Go to those things. There's a couple. There's in the past, there's um, the Creed of Oneness that is already in the past on the YouTube channel. You can find it. And currently, he's also teaching a class in Aqidah that's a little bit more advanced than that, that everyone can benefit from, inshallah, on Wednesday nights. Now he gives a section on the major sins. So now we're going to get into the matters of the heart. It's very, very brief. But subhanAllah, it's very powerful. We need to cover the kaba'ir, we need to cover tawbah, repentance. So let's move. So from the major sins that a person, if they do them, they are considered to be fasiq, they are considered to be corrupt. This isn't just like some sort of haphazard uh, categorization. It has consequences. Now, there's a reason why this is being delineated. For example, a person's witness is not seen the same way if they're considered to be a facet, if it's accepted at all. It's not the, it's not the same. If they're, if they're from this category, it's not the same. Um, there might be, for example, rulings on like all kinds of things. It affects all kinds of things in the fiqh. So who, who, what is a major sin that if a person does it, they become from this category of considered to be corrupt, fasid. One Number one, they kill someone without due cause. Number two, they commit adultery. They have you know, sexual relations outside of marriage. They steal or they have theft. Eklu uh, riba, taking riba. Not in, interest is not always riba, but riba. It's definition for another time. When qadfu. Qadf is to accuse a believing, uh, a chaste believing person to accuse them of adultery and to not have witnesses for it. Like if you're going to make that accusation, you have to have your witnesses. If you do not, this is called Qadf. And some, I believe in the Hanafi school, if you commit Qadf, your witnesses, even if you repent afterwards, your witness is never accepted afterwards. Because you're too corrupt of a person because you said that about someone and you shouldn't have been saying that about them. That's how serious this issue is. Well, uquq is to uh, act inappropriately towards one's parents. And shurb muskir is to consume intoxicants and to leave prayer. So all of these things are major sins. 
to leave prayer, to drink intoxicants, to take intoxicants, to mistreat one's parents, to falsely slander uh, with sexual allegations a believer, to um, consume riba, to theft, adultery, and murder. All of these are major sins. وَعَلَمْ أَنَّكَ إِنَّمَا تَعْصِ اللَّهَ بِجَوَارِحِكَ وَهِيَ نِعْمَةٌ مِنَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكَ وَأَمَانَةٌ لَدَيْكَ وَهِيَ سَبَعَ الْعَيْنُ وَالْأُذْنُ وَالْلِسَانُ وَالْبَطْنُ وَالْفَرْجُ وَالْيَدُ وَالْرَجْلِ So he says, رضي الله تعالى عنه, know that you disobey Allah by your limbs. How do you disobey Allah? Through your limbs. Through your physical limbs. And our, my physical limbs. And they are a blessing from Allah upon you and a responsibility that he has given you. Meaning, you know, to have a hand is a gift from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And because it's a gift from Allah, it's also a responsibility. How am I going to use this hand? To have an ear? I have an ear. What am I going to use for my ear? What am I going to listen to? What am I going to... All of these things. Uh, it's a blessing and it's a responsibility. And so on. There's seven. He says that there's seven. Uh, the, the eye, the ear, the tongue, the stomach, the private parts, the hand, and the foot. Okay, the eye, the ears, the eye, the ear, the tongue, the stomach, the private parts, the hand, and the foot. As for the eye, as for the eye, this is not meant to be comprehensive. He's meant to give you the major things. As for the eye, protect it from looking at those things which are prohibited for it to look at. Very simple. You know, it's probably going to take some work. But it's very simple. Protect it from looking at things that it's not supposed to look at. And as for the ear, then protect it from attending to backbiting and lying. Don't let it, don't let backbiting, don't let lying come into this ear all the time. Protect it. Protect it from the stuff that can come into it. Because these are the gateways. All of these are the gateways to where? All of these things are the gateways to what? To the heart. It's now the matters of spirituality. The eyes, the ears, the, the hands, the tongue, all of these things are gateways to the heart. So protect the gateway, put the block up so that the gateway doesn't, so that things don't get into the heart that shouldn't be getting into the heart. And as for the tongue, then protect it from backbiting, protect it from lying, Protecting from being stubbornly argumentative and similar things. There's many issues of the tongue, right? But protect the tongue from all of these things. Protect the tongue from backbiting, from lying, from being argumentative in a stubborn way, and from other things as well. So protect the tongue. And as for the stomach, protect it from that which is prohibited and that which there is doubt about. Protected from that which is prohibited and that which there is doubt about. There can be doubt or prohibition for the thing itself and for the way that it is acquired. For the thing itself and for the way that it is acquired. And as for the private parts, protect them from that which Allah has made prohibited upon you. So don't mess around with that. And 
And as for the hands, then protect them from being a source of harm towards anything in creation or from acquiring by them that which is not permissible. Okay, so what am I protecting the hands from? Being a source of harm to anything that's in creation, whether that's your child, whether that's your parent, whether that's your dependent, whether that's your the person walking down the street, whether that is uh, the environment, whether that is the fish in the ocean and the birds in the sky and the insects in the earth, whatever it might be, protect that hand from being a source of harm towards anything in creation. And also protect that hand from being, from acquiring anything that is not permissible. From acquiring anything that's not permissible. Whether you stole it, whether you didn't steal it, whatever it might be, but don't let it take anything that is not permissible. And as for the feet, then protect them from walking towards anything that would be disliked. Anything that would be disliked, and of course, anything that would be in Bab Aula. If you're not going to use them to go towards anything that's disliked, then you're not going to use them to go towards anything that's haram. So now he said, in the realm of, of spirituality, he said, these are the major sins. Stay away from them. Then he said, we disobey Allah by our limbs, and there's seven. And I mentioned that those seven are all gateways to the heart. So we're trying to protect the heart from the corruption that comes from these gateways, from these entry points. And then he says, to summarize the section, وَأَمَّا مَعَاسٍ قَلْبٍ Or to complete the section, وَأَمَّا مَعَاسٍ قَلْبٍ فَكَثِيرًا وَأُمُّهَاتُهَا أَرْبَعٍ وَهِيَ الْحَسَدُ وَالْرِيَاءُ وَالْكِبْرُ وَالْعُجْبِ very interesting, actually, that he brings it down to these four, um, which other works I've mentioned as well, but it's it makes it easier to remember. It says, as for the sins or the disobedience of the heart, as for the disobedience of the heart, then they are many. They are many. The ways that we can commit acts of disobedience in our hearts are many. But their major four, their major ones are four. The major ones are four, and part of the wording indicates that a lot of the other ones kind of like pour into those four. They're related to those four somehow. Okay, so what are they? Number one, an hasad, which is, he's going to define all of them, but let's just say envy for now. Riyat, which is showing off, wanting to be seen. Wal kibr, which is arrogance, and urjb is, uh, what's the, there's a good word for it. Urjb is, Like to be amazed with yourself, to be amazed with yourself, you know, mashallah. So he's going to define them anyways. This is the definition of hasad. Definition of envy is this, this one, this hasad that we have to be really careful of. It is to want someone else's blessing to go away. To want someone else's blessing to go away. This is the thing we have to consider. We might look at someone and think they don't really deserve that. Okay? Who is the one that gave it to them? It's Allah. 
we think they deserve it, we think they don't deserve it, whatever. Allah is the one who gave it to them. Why would I want a blessing that they have to be taken from them? That's 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 hasid, you know, to look at it and be like they don't they shouldn't have that, they don't deserve that. I wish they didn't have that, you know. That's hasid is very, very dangerous. Hasid ta'kul, ya'kul, ya'kul al hasanat. It it eats the good deeds of a person, it eats them up like the fire eats up wood. So this is uh, envy. وَأَمَّا الرِّيَاءِ فَهُوَ طَلَبُ الْمَنْزِلَةِ بِعَمَلِهِ فِي قُلُوبِ الْخَلْقِ And as for showing off, it is to seek a place in the hearts of the creation by one's deeds. So what is this? What is this, what is this about? This is about that when we do something, whatever it might be, we do it for the pleasure of Allah. We do it seeking the pleasure of Allah, seeking the reward of Allah. So now if I do it so that someone will think whatever it might be about me, then in a sense, I didn't do it for Allah now. I did it for whatever it is that I was seeking from that person or whatever position in their heart that I was seeking or so on and so forth. This is the riyat. So this is showing off. This is seeking station in other people's hearts through things that we are supposed to actually be seeking Allah. Okay. Arrogance is to look down on someone else. Arrogance is to look down on someone else. Arrogance is to look down on someone else. They said to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Ya Rasulullah, One of us might like nice shoes and nice clothes. Is that kibr? Is that arrogance? The Prophet said no. That Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. Kibr is to to reject the truth and to look down on people. So to look down and say, look at this person, they're like this, these people, they're like that, they're you know, people who are this color, they're always this way. People who are that color, they're always this way. People who are this place, they're always like that. We look down on them like this. Allah forgive us. As kibr, that's arrogance. Ujb is, is to look at oneself with self-aggrandizement. To look at oneself with self-aggrandizement. Like, mashallah, look at me. I'm such a righteous person. I'm such a knowledgeable person. I'm such a good person. I'm such a giving person. I'm such a generous person. There's nobody who's like me. I mean, if you were to look at 100 people, I'm definitely in the top three in every 100. You know, this kind of stuff is to really like look upon oneself in that way. This is, of course, a very dangerous disease of the heart as well. And in, in the books of spirituality, all of this is dealt with in a lot of detail and all of its branches and all of its sources and all of its ways to treat it and so on and so forth. All of those things are there. But this, again, similar to the matters of belief, is meant to be very uh, brief. Forgot that we have Toba. We have 10 minutes. Good. Faslun fit-tawbati. Faslun fit-tawbati. A section on seeking Allah's forgiveness, turning back to Allah. Tawbah is turning back to Allah. So he talked about, this is spirituality, right? Talk about what are the things that I'm supposed to avoid? 
inevitably I'm going to fall into many of them. Hopefully not the big ones, but some of the small ones definitely we're going to fall into. What do we do when we fall into them? We ask for Allah's forgiveness. We turn back to him. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Turning back to Allah and asking his forgiveness is necessary for every sin. And it has conditions. It has conditions. Number one. Number two, and number three, so number one is to regret the thing that they did, to regret the thing that they did. Number two is to leave it in the moment, cease it, regret it, cease it. Number three, and number three is to have resolve to not return to it in the future, ever. So what is this is these are the conditions of asking Allah for forgiveness. I have to actually regret it. I have to leave it and I have to resolve to not return to it in the future. If I don't meet all of the conditions, it's not a valid repentance. It's not a valid seeking of forgiveness. This is now for things that relate to me myself. This is three three conditions for what relates to me myself. So this is, these three rules are for if what happened is between the person and Allah and there's no other right of another person involved. Uh, so this is now, um, it's between you and Allah and there's no right that is connected to it that can be made up so for example if there's an obligation here then i have to fulfill it so maybe between me and allah i missed a prayer i have to make up that prayer between me and allah i missed a fast i have to make up that fast between me and allah i didn't pay my zakat i have to pay my zakat so i have to fulfill that thing that i missed as well as the three things that came before as for if there's like uh, wealth, for example, that's involved, maybe you took someone else's right in wealth. You take someone else's right in wealth, and the wealth is still there, we have to return it. If that property or whatever it is is no longer there, we have to give them the value. So maybe you stole someone's phone. But after you stole it, phone was worth $200. And after you stole it, it broke and it's not like it can't be used anymore. You have to give them the $200. The, the value has to be that haq, that right has to be fulfilled. Uh, or you or you ask them to, to forgive you. You know, say, I, I took this from you and then I, I, I lost it. You know, can you forgive me? If they forgive you, they forgive you. And if the person who whose right was taken dies, then the right is returned to their heirs. It's not sufficient. Person died. You took their phone and they died. You can't return it to them. You have to return it to their heirs. Those who took inheritance from them, you have to return it to them. They can disperse of it however they need to disperse of it amongst themselves, but you have to return it to them. 
وأما الغيبة فإن لم يبلغ المغتابة فيكفي الشروط المذكورة وإن بلغه فيستحل منه فإن تعذر استغفر الله لا And as for backbiting, speaking ill of other people, if it did not reach the person who was spoken about, then one suffices with the conditions that were previously mentioned. So you talked bad about person X. They didn't find out about it. You don't have to go tell them and ask them to forgive you in order to seek forgiveness. That would make the problem worse. It didn't get to them. Just leave it. It's fine. If it got to them, then ideally you go to them, you ask their forgiveness. Whether you do it in general, whether you do it in specific, you know, situational. Maybe you go to them and say, you know what? I'm, I, I'm really sorry to say this, but I've said things about you that are really not appropriate. I regret it. I've tried to fix it with other people. Please, can you forgive me? And, you know, hopefully they forgive you. If that is not possible, could be not possible for any number of reasons. Maybe you can't get to the person or maybe you really feel like if I do this, it's going to make the situation much, much worse. Uh, if that's the case, then we ask Allah's forgiveness for the person. Person X, I spoke about them. I can't really tell them that. So I'm just going to ask Allah over and over and over again to forgive that person. Do a lot of istighfar on that person's behalf that Allah forgives them. Okay. So this is the section on Tawbah. And with that, we come to Kitab al-Tahara, the chapter on purification. So Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, we covered now Iman. And Ihsan, we covered belief and spirituality. And inshallah, in the next two sessions, we'll go through the five pillars of, or the four pillars of prayer and fasting and zakat. I mean, prayer and fasting and zakat and hajj. And part of prayer is to go over purification, which is where we will start from next time, inshallah. One of the nice things that Sheikh Salah does in this book, he says, we're in a time... Historically, when you read these books, there's no evidence in them. Why? Because I'm supposed to understand the development of Islamic law such that I believe that if the Hanafi school holds an opinion, they hold an opinion on evidence. I don't need to know the evidence. It's there. So historically, when you study this level of text, you don't study this level of text with any evidences. What he did in this work, most of his work in it, is to go through every single thing that's mentioned here and give the evidence for it from the Qur'an and from the Hadith. And his reasoning for this, he said, is because we live in a time now where people doubt so much the madhabs and the knowledge that the madhabs have that it helps the student in the beginning to become to, to see that there's an evidence for everything so that they can gain kind of like a trust in the, in the school. And then after that, they don't have to... After that, they can kind of go through another period where they don't know all the evidences. And then when they get further, they'll, they'll study them in more detail and stuff. But it's really amazing. I mean, mashallah, like if you see every page of the book, actually, there's very little from the actual text. The vast majority of what's there is the Sheikh's comments on the evidences and where they come from and stuff. As you can see, you know, the vast majority of the text is is his is his like this one. There's one word. Two words. Hajj. It's required. The rest of it is all evidences. <laughs> so it's really, uh, mashallah, he's done a nice job in it. There's any questions? Uh, welcome. Ustad Fuad, if you have anything you'd like to add or comment on in terms of uh, either of these two categories, the Sharaf Bikum.
You're very welcome. Molena, anything? You sure? Okay. Type. Subhanakum bi hamnik tashara wa naila in a stakunik to be like, well, answer in an insan and the fihusr. In the Ladina Amin wa Amin Usali had to us with Hakir to us with Sabr. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept from us, to give us true and correct knowledge of the religion, and to give us the ability to act upon it. And we ask Him to bring life to our limbs in obedience and to bring life to our hearts in submission and love and devotion to Him and to the Prophet. We ask, uh, you know. Allah to forgive us of all of our shortcomings and to give us tawfiq in everything that we do. Uh, and may this may this be the beginning of good for all of us and uh, a step towards understanding our religion more deeply and integrating it in the way that we live our lives. Allahumma ameen. Barakallahu fikum. And we'll see you next time, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.